It is Friday. I am so glad. And I think you are, too, because, you know, who's not glad about Friday except for people who work Saturday? And if that's you, I'm sorry, but I'm glad you're staying up late because I have some stuff. That's the clean way of saying holy rhymes with hit. Um, And the first thing I'm going to tell you is, well, it depends on how you feel about this, but in the Brian Koberger quadruple murder case in Idaho, uh, there are a lot of people getting a little nervous, you know, because Koberger's racking up some wins in his little pre-trial hearings. You know, I want that, I don't want that, I want that. And he's got the judge doing him some solids. It's a death penalty case, so that's not that unusual. However, if it makes you nervous that this guy could skate, have I got a scenario for you? Because there is truly a way for prosecutors to try him And if he is actually acquitted, meaning the jury says not guilty, there's a way for them to try him again. And again. And again. And again. I'm not kidding. I know you're throwing peanuts at the TV again. You're saying, Ashley Banfield, don't you know, in America, we have something called double jeopardy. You don't get second bite at the apple. Well, guess what? He actually uh, might have to face four trials. I'm going to explain all of this, and it's not just my crazy brain coming up with this stuff. It's actually happened before, and I was actually there. And I've been watching the case for a couple decades. And so I'm going to explain it all to you and let you know what the dealio is. And then also, so the whole, you know, world, America, went bananas over the Scott Peterson business this week because the Innocence Project in L.A. said, we're taking up his case. And when the innocence takes up a case, uh, they, they honestly, they believe that that guy's innocent. If the innocence project gets on board, they believe they've got something. They don't take cases lightly. They take very few. And they're not quite, you know, half and half. They're like 42, 43 win, percent win, 42, 43 percent lose, 15% kind of undecided. So what if Scott Peterson falls into that 42-43 win category? I mean, this is some pretty interesting stuff. Another word rhymes with it. Uh, And and no matter what you think about Scott Peterson, like I know that, here's the list, you know, he had the extramarital affair. He dyed his hair blonde. He had $15,000 in cash when they caught up with him and his brother's ID. There was questionable DNA evidence. Whatever you think about all the evidence that put that guy away, There's a lot of evidence that, you know, sort of surfaced later. And that's the stuff the Innocence Project wants to look at. We're going to talk about that. And guess what? For you tonight, I have some pictures of Scott Peterson in prison recently. So you'll see those as well. And then there's this. The next time uh, you're in a bathroom, you might get the willies. And you might think someone's watching you after you hear the story I'm going to tell you tonight. A 14-year-old girl got a bad feeling in an airplane bathroom, and it turned out she was right. Someone was watching her. Something was watching her. It was an iPhone right there, taped to the back of the actual lavatory seat with a sticker saying, broken equipment, nothing to see here, except that there was an iPhone underneath that giant swath of tape, and whoever put it there kind of left the camera light going. The whoever put it there, we think we may have solved. And if they have the right guy, uh, 
I'm astounded that that 14-year-old's father didn't tear him apart right there in the skies. Instead, this is how he ended up arrested and charged with some really bad stuff. Wait until you hear, however, what the authorities did, what he did directly after somebody went after him on the plane, and what they found in his iCloud. All that's coming up ahead. But we are now just days away from some pretty important hearings in Brian Koberger's quadruple murder. Not that anything about that Idaho case isn't important, especially with the possibility of, you know, the death penalty if he's convicted. The death penalty and a conviction is, of course, the number one goal of the Latah County prosecutors, not to mention most of the members of the victim's families. Convicting Brian Koberger of unleashing holy hell in that now-demolished house on King Road, they want that. What if they don't get it? What if they fail? What if he goes free? I'm sure you are aware there are rules in criminal procedure. If you're found not guilty, you can't be retried twice for the same crime in America. It's called double jeopardy. You know it. There are no do-overs But tonight I want to talk about how Brian Koberger could theoretically be convicted of murder even if he's initially acquitted. You heard me. How the state could try him twice. Thrice. Maybe even four times. It's a long shot for prosecutors, I know. But it is not impossible. And for anybody who worried that Koberger keeps winning all these small victories in the pretrial hearings, I want you to hold that thought for a hot minute. Case in point, just this week, a judge ordered the prosecutors to turn over some DNA evidence to investigators, um, well, to to the defense attorneys. It's the evidence that the investigators used to link Koberger uh, to the crimes. Uh, Defense wanted it. Prosecutors didn't want to give it. Judge said you got it. it. It doesn't sound like a whole lot, but it does give the defense an opportunity to pick apart every single piece of the prosecution's case, and that could make a difference when it comes time for trial. I mean, apart from the DNA allegedly found on the knife sheath at the murder scene, which is huge, there's not a whole lot of evidence providing a solid link between Koberger and the murders. And so if he can get that DNA tossed, convicting him could get a whole lot harder. And that is why prosecutors may need to get creative. Here's how. Try Koberger separately for each of the four victims he allegedly killed. Four separate trials, one after the other. Four chances to get a conviction. Four separate bites at that very same apple. And before you say that can't happen, it's happened before in a case with striking similarities. Follow me. On June 6, 1996, police in Rowlett, Texas, responded to a report of a stabbing at a family home, nice home in a nice community, wealthy family. When the cops got there, they found two little boys fatally stabbed in the chest, and their mom had a stab wound to her neck, but she was still alive. The dad, seated there at the gravesite, he was with an infant sibling upstairs, and they were fine, those two. The mom's name is Darlie Routier, and she told the police that when all of this happened, she was sleeping on the couch with her five- and six-year-old boys when suddenly she woke up to an intruder who was stabbing her, and he'd already killed her kids. Horror. But the police 
They said they had spidey senses. They just didn't buy the story. And then they started to find a whole lot of inconsistencies in her story. And they said the physical evidence at the house, at the crime scene, actually pointed to the killer maybe being inside the home. So Darlie Routier was arrested and charged with both of the murders of those two little boys. And prosecutors got creative. They decided to try her for only one of the murders, her five-year-old son, Damon. If she happened to be acquitted, they figured they could try her again for the second one, the six-year-old named Devon. That's what you call two bites at the same apple. It turns out Darlie Routier was convicted, and she was sentenced to death in that first trial. And she's been on death row for the last 27 years. To this day, she has never been tried for the second little boy. She's never been tried for Devon's murder. No one has been. So what does all this mean for Koberger? For that, I'm joined by Jesse Weber. He is an attorney and a legal contributor for News Nation and an anchor on the Law and Crime Network. Also, very, very smart. And I call him a lot for help, like tonight. So, Jesse, where am I wrong in this strategy when it comes to Koberger and four murders? Ashley, Ashley you're never wrong. You're never wrong. But look, here, here's where I'll Stop. say the, comp- the complication is. In the Routier case, that theory was never tested because she was convicted. The problem is, is when we talk about double jeopardy, even when you have multiple victims, the Supreme Court has said that is part of the same offense, and that can be double jeopardy. There's a case from the Supreme Court called Ash v. Swenson. I encourage everybody to check it out. It was about a robbery of multiple victims. And you had one of the defendants who was actually acquitted with respect to one of the victims but couldn't be retried with respect to the others because it was all part of the same offense. Now, theoretically, is it possible? Prosecutors would say, hey, listen, let's just try him for two of the victims in the, in the Idaho case, see what happens. They could make an argument that, you know, it's, it's two separate kinds of, you know, we tried him for these two killings. We don't know what's going to happen with the other two. I don't think it's going to be successful. I don't think they want to risk it. And even putting aside the issue of double jeopardy, this is a really tough case. I don't think a judge is going to want to have four separate trials that could potentially traumatize the family on top of the cost the litigation of having four separate cases. I just sure. don't see that four being a successful uh, Death case. penalty cases. Yeah, yeah I, I just don't cases, see it. Which are even more expensive. So I'm going to throw another scenario at you just because there were two separate murder scenes in the same house. And theoretically, they could have happened 20 minutes apart. That's sort of the, the window of the murder. And so if you have one scene with um, Kaylee and Maddie upstairs, and then another scene with Ethan and Zana on the second floor in a different bedroom with a whole different set of circumstances, fighting and all the rest. Why can't you now really honestly look at that as two separate incidents? And I only say that because maybe the plan was to kill the two girls and then something went awry. He took a wrong turn in a complicated house, yada, yada, yada. The complication is all these killings happened at the same time in the same house with the, in the same manner. Now, there is an avenue, and this is a long shot. This is the only way I could see it working. If, if they could present some sort of evidence that there's someone else who did it. So in other words, Brian Koberger is acquitted of the murders of two people, but perhaps someone else killed the other two. And so if you could suggest that he, it's not one individual who killed all four people, that it's not impossible that perhaps he could be 
retried or tried separately for other, the other two victims. There is nothing so to suggest parad- there's been multiple killers, but that's something that I think right. Would and be paradoxically, a right. Paradoxically, prosecutors don't want to start raising that possibility because right. that helps him to you know get acquitted. Oh no, me. You know the other guy did it. That's a typical uh, defense. Okay, I, I want to go on to some other housekeeping things because in this trial, housekeeping things can mean everything. Next week, we've got a big uh, double hearing day. And, you know, it is entirely possible we're finally going to learn when this trial is going to be held. Prosecutors want it to be in the summertime. I did a big segment this week about how six weeks in the summer, good luck finding jurors uh, with children out of school and summer vacation plans already paid for, etc. Good luck, you know, especially if it's going to be a sequestered jury six weeks in the summer. What are your thoughts on that? It's going to be hard finding a jury no matter what the month is. Let me tell you, I hope it's in the summer. Nobody wants the really a cold trial in Idaho. I mean, it's going to be absolutely freezing. But look, I, I think that they're hoping for summer. Um, I think the hearing that was just happening this week, uh, you know, the idea that the defense is being handed over DNA evidence may delay it. We don't know what they've gotten. We don't know what they're trying to get from that evidence. But this case has been continually delayed. There's been kind of different pretrial motions that's being decided. If you told me the trial's happening in the summer, I wouldn't be surprised, but I also wouldn't be surprised if it's ultimately delayed. But I agree with you, no matter when this trial happens, finding an impartial jury, and that doesn't mean that people haven't heard about the case. It just means, can they put whatever opinions and thoughts they have about it to the side and look just at the facts and the evidence, easier said than done. Oh, man. I mean, I, I was I was there for Casey Anthony, uh, individual voir dire, and it was just forever. And eventually they gave up and they went to a whole other county. It, it took a long, long time, which is why I kind of think, forget it. You know, it's really, it, summertime is a tough time. You've got hardship with parents who have kids out of school. Again, people have paid for travel. That's a hardship. They usually don't make people give up paid for vacations. And again, it's this likely a sequestered jury, right, because of the high-profile nature of this. So I just think it's going to be harder and harder to find death-qualified, which is hard, hard to start with. Will you join yeah. me again next week on this? Because I, Whenever I just, you want me. I'm, I'm, I'm there. You let me know, Ashley. I'm, I'm here to jump with you, whatever you want to do. Love that. I love that. Oh, Jesse Weber, thank you so much. In the meantime, rest up, my friend, this weekend, because I'm coming at you next week. <laughs> Sounds you, good. Please. Good seeing you, Ashley. Thanks. Jesse Weber, good to see you, too. Okay. Um, Even when a notorious murder case ends in a guilty verdict and a death sentence, there are some crazy plot twists uh, that are definitely uh, a potential. Case in point, the newest push for a brand new trial for this guy, Scott Peterson, locked up in Orange for life for murdering his wife Lacey and their unborn son more than 20 years ago. Now the LA Innocence Project says... The evidence is on Peterson's side. If only they can get it and test it. We'll take a look at that in a moment. Um, If you wake up tomorrow and there is snow all over your front yard, but there was no snow on the ground when you went to bed, You know it snowed while you were asleep, right? Even if you didn't see the flakes coming down. We can all agree on that. That is like a 101 lesson in circumstantial evidence. But direct evidence is a little different. That would be you were out frolicking in those flakes, catching them on your tongue, taking pictures of the blizzard, trudging your way back inside, covered in snow. That's the direct stuff. 
You were there. You saw it happen. Um, either kind of evidence, direct and circumstantial, is very strong. Trust me, it's very strong. It snowed overnight. That's strong. I woke up and saw snow all over the ground. And, and either kind of evidence can put you away for life. It can also take your life. Just ask Scott Peterson. Because it's now been 20 years since he was convicted of killing his pregnant wife, Lacey, and their unborn son, both of whose bodies washed up on the shore of San Francisco Bay almost four months after Lacey vanished. But those bodies surfaced five months after Scott's first date with his mistress, Amber Fry. Uh, Here he is in a taped conversation with Amber, lying his teeth off about uh, being in Paris at the... You know, and then he wasn't in Paris when he was making this phone call. No, he was actually standing just off to the side of the very tearful vigil that was being held for his missing wife. Hey. Yes. Okay. Hey, I'm talking. Okay, I'm like, stay still or something. I know. I got to make it work. How's your How was your New Year's? What's that? How was your New Year's? It's good. I'm just, uh, I went to the bar now, so I came out of the alley. Quiet alley. Isn't that nice? Yeah, it is. I could do <laughs> Very good. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Fireworks and everything. The Eiffel Tower. The people all playing American rock songs. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Well, that's good. I'm glad you guys decided to go out. Eiffel Tower, fireworks, American pop songs. No, there were people crying, and they weren't playing pop songs. They were desperately looking for your wife. And you were standing right there making that call. Scott was arrested um, on the same day that Lacey's body washed up. That was in April of 2003. And the investigators say that he had multiple cell phones on him when they caught him. Uh, He had $15,000 in cash. He had his brother's ID. He had dyed his hair blonde, though he did claim that that was to throw off the media that was hounding him. So I get that. Uh, But, you know, he had that girlfriend, a girlfriend who he had told, uh, my wife died even before that wife really disappeared. So all of that circumstantial evidence, along with some mitochondrial DNA from his boat, that is what got Scott Peterson convicted and sentenced to death, which was later changed to life without parole. And through it all, Scott has sworn upside and down that he is innocent, that police got the wrong guy. And there were actually a few documentary projects that have come out in the last few years uh, that pointed out some, you know, pretty interesting evidence that didn't get a whole lot of attention during his case either. But now the L.A. Innocence Project has taken up his cause. They say that evidence does exist that could clear Scott Peterson. Direct evidence, they say, some of it. Um, And they point to also that burglary that happened just across the street from the Peterson's home on the day that Lacey disappeared. Although that's in dispute, too, what day the burglary happened, over two days. Scott uh, brought this whole fact up himself during a 2017 prison interview. Take a look. I wasn't the last one to see Lacey that day. There were so many witnesses who saw her walk in the neighborhood after I left. The cops just never followed up on the burglar across the street. The police failed upon my family. Wow. Um, Direct evidence, witnesses. These new filings ask for a range of -of state-of-the-art DNA testing, too, on items related to the burglary, including cloth from a mattress that was found in the burglar's van, which 
went up in flames due to arson the very next day near the Modesto airport. Uh, the group also wants to test the cloth that was stuffed into the van's fuel tank because it was arson. And then also a target bag, duct tape, and a black tarp that was found near the bodies. I'm going to stop here. I'm going to bring in News Nation correspondent Laura Ingle, who spent two days pouring through all of these hundreds of pages of documents. But maybe more importantly, Laura literally moved to a new jurisdiction so that she could cover the Scott Peterson case from top to bottom. So there is no more definitive expert. You and Ted Rollins both just on the story nonstop. Tonight, I don't want to rehash all the stuff because everyone's been reporting on all that. Laura, I want to go over some of the photos right. that you, you have, you know, in your hands um, because it's, I haven't seen them. I know there's some little bits and pieces out there, but I have not seen this. So, so walk me through what you got. So we have a couple of things that I've had, you know, for the last couple of years. Uh, last year, I worked on a documentary on the Scott Peterson case. And in my uh, interviews, I talked to Janie Peterson, who is Scott Peterson's sister-in-law, who has really been leading the charge, uh, trying to fight for a new trial to s- tell anybody who will listen to her that she believes and the family believes he is innocent. In fact, she has this uh, war room. I call it a war room. She says it's an evidence room. She's got this, you know, kind of like homeland uh, timeline on her walls uh, with other supporters that they have made uh, showing all of the different phone calls and the eyewitnesses that have come forward talking about what they sh- say proves that Scott Peterson could not have possibly committed these crimes. The pictures that you're looking at now are from photos inside of the home that are on that uh, in that war room on the bulletin boards. And what was really interesting last year as well, I talked to detective now retired detective Al Brocchini, uh, who gave us the pictures uh, with those arrest photos that you saw there. Uh, and I asked him point blank. I said, "What do you think happened?" You know, we've heard all kinds of different theories, but you were on this case from the very night that phone call came in that reported her missing. What do you think happened? And he said, I think that Lacey was sitting on the end of that bed where you see that white duvet and that Scott mm-hmm. Peterson somehow he strangled her, put a bag over her. They had some kind of an argument. There was blood, blood specks on the end of the bed, That's not the bed. at the top of the bed by right the pillows there. where... Yeah, where you might, uh, yep, where you may not, you know, cut yourself if you were shaving. Uh, but he said that their blood did match Scott Peterson, and he believes it's because Lacey had scratched him trying to stop him from strangling her or smothering her. This was a soft kill. Uh, most people can agree there wasn't a ton of blood, so it wasn't a stabbing, it wasn't a shooting. Uh, but taking a look, you know, just being inside, going inside of the house of Scott and Lacey Peterson through these photos once again and taking a look at the different theories uh, has always been really interesting. And then to hear Soft. from Detective Brocchini wow. exactly what he thinks happened. Soft kill. It's just, it gives me the willies because um, it's just, you know, such a paradox. Uh, so the other pictures that you have in your possession are of Scott actually inside um, the prison, inside San Quentin. Explain how you got them and what we're seeing. Right. So Janie Peterson gave me this photo. I want to show it to you. It's a Zoom call, something like a Zoom call, where Scott Peterson was in prison in San Quentin. And what you see here is Scott Peterson talking to members of his family. This is a private moment that was shared uh, by Janie to me. 
And what you see there, it looks like Scott Peterson is, you know, in front of a window with trees and grass, but it's actually a superimposed photo that the prison used um, just to give a different background so it didn't look so stark when family members are talking to their loved ones who are incarcerated. Um, so this was really kind of the first time, all, all that we've seen for the most part from Scott Peterson are the various mugshots through the years. Uh, but now we see him having a moment with his family. They were sharing a private uh, family joke in this picture that you're seeing. Um, and now he has been since moved to Mule Creek State Prison, which is in Ione, California, just outside of Sacramento, where he's serving life in prison without the possibility of parole, all the while talking with the family members that you see there on that Zoom call, uh, trying to Amazing. work towards what just happened this week with this massive document coming out uh, asking for the retesting and testing of evidence that they say had never been tested before uh, to help prove that he did not do these crimes. You're going to be busy because this is now back on the radar. And thank you for bringing those photos to the show. I really appreciate it, Laura. And of course, thank you for all your work 20 years ago, Absolutely. too, because, you know, now now we have the encyclopedia on staff. <laughs> Laura Engel joining us live tonight. Okay, talk about a uh, plot twist. Alec Baldwin hit with a felony charge again in that deadly movie set shooting more than two years ago. He was the film's star, but also its co-producer. And he spent months legally free and clear after the same charge was dismissed. So what, what's going on? Why, do, why, did, why would they come back with the same stuff? Uh, I'm going to show you what changed and why this could be really bad news for Baldwin. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. January 19th is Alec Baldwin's least favorite day ever. I did not ask him about that. I just know it. Because on this day, January 19th, last year, prosecutors in New Mexico charged him with manslaughter in that movie set shooting that killed the cinematographer. Uh, they eventually actually decided to drop the charges. Uh, that happened a couple months ago. And then came today, January 19th, this year. And they have done it again on the very same day. They charged Alec Baldwin for the shooting for a second time. What is with January 19th? He is again facing the real possibility of going to prison for manslaughter if the state gets a conviction. Officially, it's involuntary manslaughter. Uh, but that's what a grand jury in New Mexico chose to indict him with again. Remember that he was the actor holding the gun that went off during a rehearsal. He says he was handed the gun, that it was cleared. Several people yelled, cold gun, meaning no bullets. But there was a bullet in the chamber, and Helena Hutchins was shot dead. Joel Souza, the director, was injured. All of this happened in 2021. Um, and this was Alec right after the shooting. Are you doing okay? No, I'm not, actually. Okay. Yeah. Just leave that stuff on, sir. Um, yeah, leave him on right now. So I'm going to talk to my crime scene tech. 
So um, aside from the, the gun being designated cold, Baldwin insists he didn't even pull the trigger on, on all of this. Take a listen. The trigger wasn't pulled. I didn't pull the trigger. So you never pulled the trigger? No, 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 no. no. I, I would never point a gun at anyone and pull a trigger at them, never. Baldwin could face up to 18 months in prison if convicted, and his attorney says, we look forward to our day in court. I look forward to talking to Steve Wolf because he is a safety expert with guns, special effects. He's a coordinator. He's the CEO of Wildfire Suppression Company, Team Wildfire. So you know how guns on sets work. You know how actors work with guns. You know the courses they have to go through. You know what producers have to do, and Alec was a co-producer. What do you make of this whole second bite at charging him? Well, if they have the legal right to charge him, they certainly have the basis. The charges in voluntary manslaughter, and that means you killed somebody and you didn't mean to do it. And both of those things are true. So it's a correct charge for what happened. Here's the, the thing um, I'm looking at as I look at the... They've got him on involuntary manslaughter, Steve, but there's two definitions, basically. And, and the way the New York Times puts it is um, the first theory basically accuses him of, quote, total disregard or indifference for the safety of others. I'm struggling with that one. I, I don't think that, you know, Alec Baldwin was going pew, pew, pew with, with guns through a set. But, okay, but the yeah. second well, that, theory that's actually, is... Yep. Go ahead. That that's a definition is not the one that the state of New Mexico uses, which just says, you know, failure to exercise due care. And that absolutely was the case. Due care when you're handling a firearm on set means, you know, that somebody checks to make sure there's nothing inside there. That's not an unreasonable claim. Somebody checks the ammo to make sure that it's not live ammo. That's not unreasonable to ask. So, you know, a minimum bar for safety was was not reached. All right, so without due caution or circumspection, or circumspection, that's that's the more serious one. The, the other one is negligent use of a firearm. So with regard to that, uh, you know, they're, they're accusing him of operating without due caution or circumspection. And I'm looking at him saying, I'm an actor. Here comes the assistant director. They're yelling cold gun. I'm taking it. So is my due caution and circumspection, I wait to hear cold gun before I take gun. And, it, and while you're explaining it, you have the actual gun. Show me what more circumspection he would have needed to, to do to avoid all this. Like, show me what he would have had to do up high. Yeah, very simply, you, you open this up, you look here. If there's no ammo there, it, then it's a cold gun. Uh, so that's not, not a lot to ask of somebody. Even an actor could look and see, you know, whether this is an empty hole or whether there's a round there. So that's, that's not asking a lot of anyone. Uh, and then the person who took, yelled cold gun. It took gun, like two seconds, right? To, yeah, to right. To open it up, and it The took person two who yelled to, cold to gun was the assistant director. The assistant director is not the armorer. Alec knew that. So that has no more weight than if the caterer yelled cold, cold gun. They're not the person in charge of the gun. Doesn't he say, and I'm trying to refresh my memory live here, but doesn't he say that he knew that the assistant director got the, so to speak, cold gun from the armorer? Like that he was sort of party to that whole chain reaction? Well, you're certainly familiar with the concept of chain of evidence. And there's a chain of responsibility with firearms. And that means that each person who takes the gun into their hand has responsibility and the knowledge to do so. 
So an actor would take a gun from the armorer. They wouldn't take a gun from the assistant director because the assistant director has no idea what the condition of the gun is. And in fact, you know, they yeah. themselves never looked at it. So they had no business saying that, and he had no business listening to that person, uh, you know, and their claim. It. Yeah. Important to just say to our audience that this was not a prop gun. It was a real gun, and things are that, different that is when correct. using a, a prop gun or right. a real and we, gun. And we continue Steve, I'm going to have you back because... Yeah, we're, we're okay. back on the story. Uh, we thought we were like, right. goodbye, Steve. Loved having you, you know, but yeah, right. you're going to have to bring that gun back again, okay? Yeah, and, and as you can see, you know, it takes very little pressure on these single-action guns to move it. So it's not even relevant whether he wow. had his finger on the trigger, right? It's, all right, thanks so much. It, it, you're the perfect guest tonight for this, and you're going to be the perfect guest going forward. Thank you for that. Steve Wolf. Um, hey, thanks so much, Ashley. get used to the name. He's... You're going to be invited back. Okay, so coming up next, an American Airlines flight attendant in jail tonight. Um, and if the charges are true, it's exactly where he belongs. I want you to take a look at a, this picture. Um, under that sticker is an iPhone hidden in an airplane lavatory right on the toilet seat. Camera on, presumably with that light. The good part is that somebody spotted it. And um, the guy who allegedly planted it was busted. But the bad part is it was not fast enough. Wait until you hear what police found in this guy's iCloud pictures. And parents, if you have young girls, do not go anywhere. Good reason uh, that I'm about to tell you this next story, even though it's going to hurt. I want you to take a good look at that picture. It's what a 14-year-old girl saw in the airplane lavatory of an American Airlines flight last fall. That is a sticker that says, seat broken. And peeking out from underneath it is an iPhone that's positioned there, allegedly by a male flight attendant on that flight, to record people, very young people, using the toilet. Here's what happened. The um, 14-year-old victim in this case was flying with her family from Charlotte to Boston, and she got up to use the restroom in the main cabin, which is what we do when we sit in the main cabin. But it was occupied, so as she stood there, a flight attendant said, hey, the bathroom in first class is open, and walked her there. How nice. But the weird thing was he went in first. He says, hang on, um, he needed to wash his hands. And then she went in after. Uh, And she doesn't spot that half-hidden iPhone with its lights on until after she's finished. But she does do something very, very smart. She takes a picture of it. And then she marches right back to her seat and she shows it to her parents. Can imagine what happened then, right? Parents alert the crew. That's code for holy hell broke loose. Um, But the flight attendant in question who led her to the bathroom and had to wash his hands first before she could go in, somehow he was able to lock himself in the bathroom again for several minutes, presumably wiping his phone back to factory status. Because that's how the cops found it when they arrested him upon landing. So... His name is Estes Carter Thompson III. He is now a former American Airlines flight attendant and current inmate, facing very serious charges. FBI did a little digging in his iCloud account and said they found plenty of evidence of child porn and other child victims of the airplane bathroom camera business. And now he's federally charged with attempted sexual exploitation of a child and possessing child pornography. And the authorities say that Some of the victims they found were as young as seven. Just let that sink in. 
Just a short time ago, I spoke with Paul Llewellyn because he is the attorney representing that 14-year-old girl and her family. By the way, um, I do want to tell you after. Your client was awfully young. I mean, by the reports, 14 years old, and yet she could single-handedly be responsible for stopping a, a child predator multi-times over. Um, first, does she know how significant... Um, her role was in, in helping others not to be victimized. And is she okay? Is she doing okay? Well, firstly, thank goodness she had the wherewithal to take that picture. As you rightly point out, without that picture, then this child predator may never have been, have been caught. As far as is she doing okay, you know, it's obviously had a devastating impact on her and her family. Um, the family are doing their best to protect their daughter. We may never know what happened to these pictures. For example, are they on the dark web? Is there a video out there on the dark web? So sadly, this will likely be hanging over her for the rest of her life. And just for logistics, um, the way I understand the story, and correct me if I'm wrong, she had the wherewithal right away to take that picture, go back to her seat, tell her parents what had transpired, and ultimately her father confronted this this flight attendant who then locked himself in the uh, lavatory and presumably wiped the phone back to factory settings. Hopefully, if all of that is true, her photos don't exist anymore. But you're right. saying there's a possibility something happened in between that, that timeline? That's right. We don't know, of course, what the flight attendant was doing with the photos while he was locked in the bathroom, number one. We don't know if they was being live streamed, so there could be recordings of it out there as well. More importantly, the fact that the flight attendant was allowed to go back into the bathroom, this was a crime scene at this time. And so the, the fact that the phone was not immediately seized from the flight attendant to prevent him doing that very act, in my opinion, is shocking. And yet another failing of American Airlines. What happened when this flight attendant um, took your client uh, from economy up to the first class bathroom? Before she went into the bathroom, he said, before you go in, I'm just going to wash my hands because I'm about to start trash collection service. Well, that's unusual. Why would you wash your hands before you start collecting trash? He then said, um, so he went in, came back a short time later, and he said, the toilet seat is broken, but don't worry, we will fix it when we land. So clearly, when he pretended to wash his hands, he was in there setting up the camera. And do you plan on interviewing that, that flight crew to find out if this was something they'd seen before? I know flight crew changes all the time, but at least this flight, flight crew? Absolutely. We would certainly want to talk to them as part of the discovery process in the civil lawsuit. Absolutely. What is the next step for your client? Is she going to have to be part of this criminal prosecution, maybe even testify in court? She certainly has a, a witness's story to tell, even if it's possible no one can prove if there's video or, or, or photographic evidence that she became uh, one of the alleged victims. Yes, yeah, certainly. I think obviously the criminal process is just starting, but I think that's certainly a possibility that if this case goes to trial, if the flight attendant does not be guilty, and of course I hope he does, but if he doesn't, then yes, I imagine she and potentially some of the other victims may be witnesses in that trial. I, I am sensing from our conversation that it is more than likely there'll be some kind of civil action against the airline. Uh, we've actually already filed a lawsuit against American Airlines that's pending North Carolina. Um, and so, um, yes, it's already pending. It's in its early stages. And who knows if other lawsuits will be filed on behalf of the other victims' families. Is there a price tag on that lawsuit? 
Sorry, what was that? Is there is there a dollar amount on that lawsuit? No, ultimately that will be for a North Carolina jury to determine. But also this this you know it's not about money. No amount of money can ever reverse what happened to this family. Ultimately, the family's main concern is to make sure that this never happens again to any other family. And the well-being of their daughter. Please pass on our um, our best wishes to this you know client of yours, this young girl, and also to her family as they navigate this. I sure appreciate you being on with me. Thank you for this. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Paul Llewellyn joining us. And here's what American Airlines had to say about this incident. We take these allegations very seriously. They do not reflect our airline or our core mission of caring for people. We've been fully cooperating with law enforcement in its investigation. And there is nothing more important than the safety and security of our customers and team. We're going to keep watching this one and um, probably next week, in fact. Coming up next, um, Madonna. It's Madonna time. Because Madonna time apparently is a few hours behind the rest of our time, like the rest of the world. And now the material girl is in borderline legal trouble with two of her fans, or should I say former fans. That's next. Here is the difference between Madonna and me. Among other things, uh, five nights a week when the clock strikes 10 on the East Coast and seven on the West Coast, I am right here in this chair, ready to go live. And I do. I do not breeze in at 1020 or 1115 or midnight, because if I did that, it would be one time. And the next night, Brian Enton would probably be here permanently. Uh, Madonna, on the other hand, has a habit that maybe we should say is not exactly rare in her business but it has gotten her into some trouble. Uh, It seems like she was more than two hours late at all three of her concerts last month in Brooklyn. She was supposed to go on at 8.30, but didn't take the stage till after 10.30 and didn't take a bow until 1 a.m. So tonight, in response, a pair of ticked-off ticket holders are suing her and Live Nation, the promoter, and Barclays Center, the venue, for alleged false advertising, negligent misrepresentation, and unfair and deceptive trade practices. And it's not the first time Madge has faced a lawsuit for starting late. Back in 2019, a fan sued for the exact same reason. And Madonna had a response on social media, which was like, Ready? Uh, there is something you all need to understand, and that is, a queen is never late. But I say, Madge, tell that to my babysitter. And now my time is up. Thank you so much for watching. It's been great to have you. Have yourselves a great weekend. I'll be back here Monday. In the meantime, Cuomo is picking up things next. everybody, I'm Chris Cuomo. Happy Friday. We are live, so what do you say? Let's get after it. Have you heard about this American Airlines flight attendant videotaping minors in the airplane restroom? A male, of course, now arrested. Authorities are investigating at least four other incidents. We have the inside story and a lawyer for the 14-year-old victim. Then, the Innocence Project taking on a case is a big deal. Taking on the case of Scott Peterson is a titanic statement. The man once given... 
spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.